The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400-horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. Hello, how are you folks? This is Jim McKee's bartender coming to you from Key Largo. I'm turning... Wow, that music went right up. I am so sorry. I am not the best sound person in the world. But I do appreciate you listening. Welcome back again. What were they thinking? That sounds like a negative, but I, it's more of a interrogative or a, a question. What, what were they thinking? That's uh, My father's been doing a lot of downloads on pictures on Facebook. It's usually a big, you know, I'm in my late 50s and stuff like that, but when you ever say, you know, mom or dad's on Facebook, <clears throat> you just wait for the embarrassment to ensue. My dad, on the other hand, he's pretty good tech for a man who just turned 80. So, we'll, uh, I'll post a picture in the title of the show, if I can master the sizing technique that makes it I know this is me I had mastered the sizing technique it just take me a little longer to do it no problem the crowds are still here in the keys it is a beautiful day it is in the mid 70s right now it's probably going to hit in the lower 80s the crowds are still here with children I mean don't they have school it's it's a couple days after Easter and a little less than two months left to school, and usually they don't have spring break. I guess people are doing it whenever they want. And once again, Florida being one of the places that open up first, that's where most people have been planning their vacations. And I guess the rest of them <laughs> will be going other places once things open up. But without foreign destinations open. I guess they're funneling more places to places that have access, and that would be Florida. We, I mean, we offer access to people like that. And it's interesting, the, all the different types of people we get. Obviously, the people initially that started coming out, we've seen in the Keys, were people that weren't relatively concerned about the effects of COVID-19, not concerned at all, because they stayed home. Now we're starting to see people that just had enough of it, but they're still concerned about the protocols that go into protecting them and their families. And I dealt with a couple, a younger couple. They must have been in their early early 30s, late 20s with a small child. I'm not going to say their name, but they had the wipes and they were wearing the mask when they were dealing uh, with my side business, which was notary. And they they were apologizing. I said, oh, I understand completely. I didn't tell them I was a bartender on the side. Because that's one of the things with the notary. You don't promote 
outside businesses, what you do it while I'm, I mean, I can promote the notary business while I'm here. While I'm on the radio, I don't promote the podcast when I'm doing notary work because you're not supposed to do that. It's unethical. So I went to do the signing. I went to a hotel lobby and I did the signing. A nice couple. They were concerned. You know, they have a young child. As a matter of fact, the, the husband went up, the wife came down, and they both signed this document. And I guess I found it interesting that they came down to Monroe County. I guess maybe they heard that we were somewhat kind of containing, using the protocols to watch out that people don't, you know, they wear a mask when they're indoors and when they're closed. But there's a lot of places where they don't. And we do get a lot of people in there, in our places, that asking some people to wear a mask is insulting. It's asking them as if to put in a butt plug or a nipple clip, you know. They they feel it doesn't work and it doesn't feel good. I I would suggest don't knock it till you tried it. The butt plug and the nipple clamp. But I'm I'm not adhering of that. I had the nipple thing. I had a clothespin one time on my but that was just to see how it felt. It's not something I enjoy. I've never done the other thing, the butt plug, so I'm actually a hypocrite there. But I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking it. It's just not something I think I'd want. I don't get insulted that someone says, you've got to put that in. But the mask thing, they think that you're asking them to do something infringing on their freedom. And I, they, they say when you ask them to do a mask and you ask them about it, they say, if you feel that protects you, then you do it. I'm not really concerned about it. And I usually like to feel that they deserve that deserves a response, especially when they're coming to a restaurant. And then I feel the same thing about hand washing. If you think washing your hands will help when handling food and drink and will stop foodborne illness, then you should do it yourself. And then hopefully the person has the wherewithal to understand to say, well, you may get me sick. A lot of times they don't. They just look at you and get angry because they realize you box, you know, say, oh, you make it sick. Oh, I don't care. You know, they, some people say, I don't care because they back themselves in a the corner. So they already don't believe in it. So how can they say they believe in salmonella and things they can't see? Obviously, you can't believe, you, you know, if you don't believe in an airborne illness, you don't want to worry about the invisible salmonella that comes from cross-contamination and cut and raw chicken, right? So, if they say, but if they do say, you, well, you may get me sick, then I say, now you get it. Now you get it. You're getting the idea. The strict protocol practitioners are doing it to protect themselves and you. you. It's not just about you. It's about everyone. So, besides that, We've been noticing, and I've mentioned it over the past uh, few weeks, that we've had a labor shortage down here. And it's demonstrable. You can show it. Because a lot of places are understaffed. 
they are understaffed, and they're saying they can't find anybody. Some of the places people just say, and it's worse as you go further down the line. And my suggestion was uh, because of a lot of people, especially since the lockdown, some of the people that were here temporarily, you know, temporary, the itinerant workers, they moved on. Especially when the first lockdown, maybe they went home or something like that. So you lost them. And then on the other side, you're losing workforce housing. As low-end housing is being replaced by brand new constructions. I hope that noise doesn't bother you. Someone's just turned on a a sander. I'm going to have to close the window. I'm going to pause for a moment. I'll be right back. Now we're back. Ah, that's my neighbor there. He's uh, quite handy. He's building a desk for one room he just had remodeled. So we were talking about labor shortage. So a lot of these low-end rentals, uh, some of them were uh, prefab housing trailers and things like that, that those places were replaced with new construction so people could buy it. So a lot of people were buying up properties and stuff like that. We've seen it from all over the country. People that are think that Florida is the best place in the world because they had the least amount of restrictions. Uh, so they're coming down here. And then they, they're pissed off, though, because when they go out to eat, they got to wait an hour and a half because they don't have enough staff to serve them. Work in the kitchen. The prices have gone up. I've only gone up in the Keys. Rental properties have gone up. A lot of them have disappeared. But the biggest theory for that, the correlation was between the loss of labor pool, was the additional funding for unemployment and stimulus payments. That people... Once they started receiving more money, because originally prior to COVID, the top payment you can get on unemployment is $275 in, in Florida. $275 would barely keep you in the, a tent in the mangroves down here, let alone a, keep you in a, a rental property. But you add another 600 bucks on top of that, then yes, you could live down here, not high end of the high, you know, not high off the hog, but you could live down here with the additional funding. So I'm sorry, that noise is still going on, but what am I going to do? It's just one of those things. It's going on for a while. It's just someone running a sander and shit like that. So when you got these people, especially at the lower end of the wage they decided to say, well, listen, I could go in and I can make, you know, if at $15 an hour, 40, 40 hours a week is 600 bucks, And that's the additional money, right? Especially low end. If you can just get the money and not do the work. And if you see no value in your work or no quality of working that helps you, then it's even easier. If you really hate your job, you just do it. It's a dead... I'll tell you, public relief is a dead end. 
very few. You see some stories about people doing well, becoming like a working man's poet, a working class poet or something like that on public relief. Every so often you see someone rags or riches stories. But for a lifestyle choice, it's really not much of a high-end lifestyle choice. And if you see no redeeming quality in work, then it's even easier for you just to accept the money and not go into work. I, on the other hand, don't see a dead-end job as a dead-end experience. I see it as an opportunity to raise the bar. I mean, you could do, you could show people how to do the job in a high, to a high standard, committed to a high standard, high standard of quality, delivering, if it's a service job or uh, just menial labor, there's a certain high end. And, and you can use that feeling saying, I, I can do better than this by working hard and then looking for another opportunity. And use that difficult experience of working a job that's hard, difficult, and unrewarding as incentive to get a job that's better. I always thought I really didn't want to be stuck in a job, even if the money's really good. I don't want to be stuck in a job that I'm, I'm going to get tired of. It gets menial. Jobs get menial by the way you behave going into them, the way you experience, the way you experience the day, the way you get ready for work the way you feel about going to work, the way you value your work. That's really menial. So some people weigh the value of their work by the compensation they receive. Or some people weigh it by intangible rewards they have, like the meaning, the physical fitness. Like when I, as a bartender, I could look at it and people say, you're just a bartender. Well, there's, I believe, there's certain skill to becoming a good bartender. It's providing customer service, being able to do your job, being able to bartend, being able to talk to people, somewhat entertainment, sometimes as a counselor, sometimes as an answer kiosk, where someone says, hey, I got something to do, and t- telling people whether you know or you don't know, and just generally all around. I, I treat it as that and I treated it it's not only just a way I can make money which is better money than I would receive on receive on relief but then I get all these other benefits physically I'm at, up and about it's it's not a tough job it's not as tough as carpentry but you're on your feet for a long day you do move around a lot somewhat physical and I get, it's a cash cow when you think about not just the money you make, at the ideas I got, all the ideas I got for my side businesses, for the podcast, for the notary, came from spitballing ideas off people while I'm working. It's fun, I socialize. If I, when I was single, it was uh, a way for me to meet different women, which was great. It was limited that way because I pretty much settled down when I, left working for Treasury and came to bartend down here, I had a year or two. I had about two years free, a year and a half. But it was well worth it. All those things, that's made it, made it better. 
And it's tougher the job. And I don't believe you is tougher. When I ever get bored with the consequences, you normally you can think about what your day is going to be like. And if you think your day is going to be the same as yesterday and you didn't like yesterday, then you'll have a problem. If you're sick of the things, the same things people say, the same things they do, the same behaviors they have, then yeah, that could become drudgery. But if you look at it, every opportunity as a challenge, it's a difficult job, it's like working out. You know, you need about three, four difficult jobs in your life so you can get some perspective. Really hard jobs and say, well, listen, if I, I could, if I really want this job, and, and it could be uh, hard work or drudge work. Meaning working at a place, you're really just drudgery. It's boring. It's, it's, it's not unfulfilling. Or hard work, where it's physically tough on you at the end of the day. When I was doing carpentry, sometimes when you're working, your just body is shot at the end of the day. But I treat those jobs I had that were difficult. And I had more than four or five difficult jobs. I'd have to say maybe 12. Maybe. i got to get think about that sometime. But I go to the gym and I challenge myself by doing weightlifting and cardio. When I challenge myself, I mean, when you're training, when you're weight training and you're cardio, you're doing things, or you're forcefully doing things that are uncomfortable to exercise your body. Right? And I do that from anywhere from three to five days a week. And I do that day in and day out. I mean, week in and week out. In order to maintain a certain physicality that I have and want to maintain. And why not do that with my work efforts? Whenever I had, if I keep on forgetting about that, say, I don't want to do this. I want to retire and this. What am I fucking going to do when I retire? What am I going to do when I retire? No, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. I'll bartend less and less, maybe do some other things. I got the notary work going on. I could end up... I I don't know what I'm going to do next. The podcasting I like doing, that gets me joy. That's something I get up in the morning and then I think about it when I'm working. I say, well, that's a great idea. I get my ideas, but they're not all from working. Just yesterday, or the last two days, my father, who is just turned 80. He lives in Dover, Delaware. Uh, We bear a not unusual, remarkable resemblance to each other. Growing up, a younger man, we, I mean, I was a little taller and a little thinner, I think. He was a skinny guy. I was a skinny guy. And he ended up not being skinny, but we're not heavy either. Still relatively fit. He started posting, doing a Old picture dump, I have to call it. Old picture dump. Not not crap. I'm not dumping, meaning putting out these old pictures and posting on Facebook. And they're, they go back to, some of them are from the 30s or 20s, it looks like, for older pictures of my great-grandfather, my grandfather, uh, both great-grandfathers and grandmothers on my dad's side his mother's parents, and his father's parents. And they all 
my grandmother's from Western Pennsylvania, and she moved as a young woman to Philadelphia, and she married my grandfather, who grew up in Philadelphia, and his father, Peter Horan, I think people say, they suggest that I'm a lot like my grandfather and my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a really big man. He was a couple inches taller than me, even. I'm 6'4". He was around 6'6". Six, six. Uh, but Grandpa was... Grandpa was maybe 5'9". So, there was a big size disparity between that and my... Uh, but my great-grandmother was a small woman, too. And my mother's... My my grandmother, my maternal... Paternal grandmother's family, they were... They were country folk. They got a big family, seven. My dad was, uh, my dad's family, father's family, spent, when they came over from Ireland, they were in Philadelphia almost the whole time. Within a couple blocks, they stayed. Matter of fact, my uncle, who was born, my, my grandfather's brother, who was probably born in 1905, 1905-1906 they lived on the same street until the I think it was the early 90s yeah 85 years on the same street in Philadelphia they saw a big transformation in the city and you see these pictures and you're wondering you see all these pictures tons of them and it was much harder back then to take pictures right I mentioned that on my last show you take the picture, you got to go and get it developed unless you were an aficionado and you did the darkroom thing. Right? You have to go and use the, you, the developer fluid, use a red light, developer fluid, and then you develop the photo. And then once it's the exposure is the way you want it, you drop it in a fixing solution and fixing solution stops the development of the photo and then you hang it up to dry. I know a little about photography and film developing. Uh, years ago, my cousin was a stringer. I guess they call him a stringer, like Peter Parker, but in Salisbury, North Carolina. And in the summers, a couple times I would handle the cameras for him and carry all the equipment. I was 13 or 14, and he was in their, his early 20s, and he used to send him get phone calls and go to scenes of accidents and things like that. And he took me to a, a boating accident where a family had taken their boat underneath a pier and the guy got the top of his head taken, you know, the top of his skull taken off. Kind of gross. But he took all these pictures and I don't know what made it in the newspaper back then, Salisbury Times, but he took me, we, we went, um, after he had the pictures taken, we went to the, Newspaper, where he went to develop the photos. I went with him. It was fun. It was late at night. Um, it wasn't fun looking at, you know, someone having their head wrapped up when you're 14 years old and his brain spilling out. But besides that, he took all these extra pictures and he took some of the pictures that they wouldn't publish in the paper and he took them for his brothers. His, they were my cousins. They were a year or two older than me. Uh, we used to hang out. He wanted to make sure that he, they saw him and saw what the results were of 
uh, drinking and driving. So those pictures I could I could talk about, but you see these pictures, and if the person who isn't who isn't uh, who's in the photo isn't there to explain it to you, you just kind of surmise what was going on. Like there's a picture of my maternal uh, great-grandparents. My paternal great-paternal. My grandfather's mother's parents. And they're standing there. The young, Their son is in a tuxedo and they're dressed up in a front. And I'm thinking, is this his wedding? Is this his graduation? And they were from western Pennsylvania. They were rural folk. And they weren't smiling, which is kind of what you used to seeing. You don't see them smiling. But the same thing they had in common is in the city when the pictures were being taken. A lot of times, you see my dad's father's family, and they're not smiling either. Got big Peter Horan and his little wife, who my father doesn't quite remember her name. I got to get my great-grandmother's name down. I'm sure we have it. My sister has it in a family tree. But they had, they used to just stop. And when they had a picture like then, it wasn't on the spur of the moment. It was like, I'm going to have a picture taken. And there's a picture of my grandfather who's in a suit. And he's in Atlantic City. On the beach. In a suit. And my father said, well, he didn't like the beach too often. But he liked going to Atlantic City because he... Like partying, my my paternal grandfather, he was he liked partying. They said that's what I was similar to in an attitude. And there he's at the beach. Now I would at the beach whether I wear I like I like wearing a suit as well as anybody that likes suits. But when I'm at the beach, that is not something I like to do. Walking, but it it looked like a couple of years. It was about 15, 16 years after the time of the HBO show Boardwalk Empire. Looked like the early 30s or mid 30s. There's my grandfather as a young man in his mid 20s. And I think they had my father when they were in their early to mid 30s. So it had to be like the early 30s. You can just tell by looking at his face a couple of years. That couple of years must have been some tough ones. But you wonder what he's looking. He's wearing a suit. He's looking out at the beach. has his picture taken. And people just didn't take pictures back in the 1930s. They had to be ready for it. It's not like, yeah, oh, I got this camera here. Let me get a cell phone. Let me take a picture. No, it's... You bring your camera down to the beach, that's your intention is to take a picture. Now in the 50s and the 60s, when a lot of these other photos, my father's uh, in 41, he was born, so he's an infant in June 1941. And I can just, by looking at it, it was, I could tell, well, not just by looking because the date's on it. It was six months before America ended World War II. And things were just getting picking up then from the, the depression. And you could see my father being helped by my 
grandmother and my grandfather. And they're still not smiling. But you see about 10, 5, 10, 15 years later, almost all the pictures, when you're taking pictures of kids and stuff in the late 40s, early 50s, people are smiling. I'm not saying because of the times or things like that. It's maybe because they were getting more used to when you have a photo that it's not that unusual anymore. That people having their photos, photos taken when they're on their couch. And they're doing it. They're not, it's not an obvious pose. It's like people have a camera and just say, hey, get the kids together. We'll put the older ones in the back and the younger ones in the front. Blah, blah, blah. And you got your cousins. I mean, there's nothing worse. You got to get make sure you get write this thing on those notes or putting in the description that who this person was and what they were doing. Otherwise, you got to speculate. Like my grandfather being at the beach. People say, well, he's probably going to casinos. Well, the casinos weren't around back then. There was no gambling in LA. So, I mean, it, there was probably gambling, but it wasn't state-sanctioned gambling. That didn't come around until the God, late 70s. That was a revive. When my grandfather had a picture taken of him in Atlantic City. Atlantic City was it. It was the shit. The mid-1930s. That a huge, big, big big-ass saltwater pool outside. They had the boardwalk. They had all the rides. And it was just the place people went from New York City to from Philadelphia. That was the place to hang out, Atlantic City. Yeah, people didn't make fun of Jersey, the Jersey Shore. And there wasn't, after, I mean, people did go down to the beaches in, in Florida in the 30s and stuff like that, but it was nothing like it was in Atlantic City. Just, I guess that's just the way it was. But I love, I love those pictures being um, Posted, and you're trying to think, well, what were they thinking? What was going on at that time? Six months before World War II, before we entered World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor was December 6, 1941, right at the end of the year. You can see there's a little re- relaxation. They didn't know. They didn't know at the time. They're holding up my dad. They didn't know there was going to be, I mean, the, Europe was installed in it. Britain was stuck on its island. France had already lost... And uh, I think uh, Germany was already heading into uh, Russia at the time. You know? So you can kind of think of things when people are in the military. And I saw some of these things. My Some uncles, one was in the 8th Army Air Corps. It was an airplane mechanic for the same squadron that the Memphis Bell was in. It was one of the bombers was that did the most frequent trips bombing runs in in Germany you can see them smiling you know it wasn't all you know it's war as hell but it wasn't always that and I know it was probably different for the guys in the Pacific and the guys that were on the you know later on in 44 and uh, you know on the mainland in France or Italy But on that lighter note, I do appreciate my dad uh, posting those pictures, and I will post one of them. I don't know which one yet, but it'll be the title cover. So what were they thinking? You didn't think I'm something negative. On on another note, my dad already has about 10 times as many baby photos as 
I have. And supposedly I was the worst baby in the world, so I can understand why people didn't want to take pictures of me. I There may be a baby photo of me out there. There's one where I'm like 18 months old, I think. I got like one of his former studio, uh, formal studio photos where you're in the short pants, you're in the suit with the short pants that they give the kids. Stuff with my sister who's in a little dress and stuff like that. We're sitting together. Well, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you are in Key Largo, I want to say something about the Catch Restaurant. It's at Mile Marker 102 Oceanside. It's open every day of the week for lunch and dinner. Happy hour from 3.30 to 6.30, Monday through Friday. Check for live music on Saturdays. They do wonderful seafood and nine seafood dishes. If you get your own catch, bring it in, and we'll prepare it for you. So that's the Catch Restaurant and Bar. It has a full bar. Come in and see us. And if you do come and see us, make sure that you're going to Catch Restaurant and Bar, Mile Marker 102, Oceanside, that you tell them that the Keys Bartender sent you. And if you like the show, please, if you like the podcast, please share with your friends. Uh, like us on fa- Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send us an email if you have any requests or observations. The email address is jim at keysbartender.com. Thank you very much and have a great day. Day.